Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Michael Flaxman, startup veteran, investor, and Bitcoiner. We talk about startup valuations, inflation's effect on investment, and the Silicon Valley obsession with unicorns. Michael also tells us about how Bitcoin will change the flow of money to venture capital. Michael Flaxman, how are you these days? I'm doing well. 2020 has uh, definitely been a strange year, but life is good. <laughs> really? Because uh, I, I think most people would say that life sucks, um, especially if they're trapped in their homes and kind of under house arrest. But I, I don't know, maybe maybe you're doing something different. What's your secret? Well, I think there's definitely a lot of things about this year that, uh, you know, if I compare my life this year versus one year ago, there are things that I miss and things that were better. Um, but I think it's a natural human bias to think that everything's terrible. And yet on all these measurable attributes, we are healthier and wealthier and um, smarter and just better humans. I, I can't imagine somebody uh, realistically saying that they wish they were born 100 years ago. But yet there's a common perception that things are worse and things are bad. Yeah. And speaking of that, there's a lot of things that continue to make civilization better. And of course, in order to do that, you always need entrepreneurs. And that's what we're talking about today. So uh, can you give us sort of a history of what you've done uh, with startups and so on? Yeah, I guess my background is uh, probably non-traditional in the regular world and, and maybe a little bit more normal to Bitcoiners. But I, I was always interested in entrepreneurship, coming up with business ideas since I was little, uh, most of them terrible. But I loved entrepreneurship. I, I took and TA'd some courses in entrepreneurship in college. And I always knew that I wanted to be involved in startup world. And as a strange aside, when I went, when I was in college, in the early aughts, it was all about like old school entrepreneurship. Uh, maybe this is a Brown thing that I, I went to Brown University and, and maybe Brown is just a little disconnected, but it wasn't about tech startups. It wasn't the Stanford vibe. Um, I remember literally in one of my courses doing a, a project presentation of like a Harvard Business School case study type thing on uh, vitamin enriched beer, what we were calling Vita beer, <laughs> just like a classically dumb college kid idea. <laughs> um, and everything back then was about, you know, Excel models and factories and widgets and cogs. None of that was relevant later in my life at all. <laughs> um, it turns out learning to code is a much, much, much better approach. Uh, bits don't cost anything. Uh, they're not heavy. They don't expire. Uh, it's much easier to build business around bits. Um, and so I uh, went into the traditional financial world. I was a management consultant for banks and insurance companies for all of a year at a very uh, prestigious firm advising companies around the world, which was super bizarre experience. My uh, first project was in Bermuda. My last project was in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Uh, I did not like management consulting or the traditional finance world at all, but it was a neat window into how these organizations operate. For point of reference, my project in Brazil was there because um, we were there because a trader typed in the wrong uh, entry on their on their keyboard, what's called fat fingering in the biz, and wiped out um, about a million U.S. dollars. And this had happened a lot of times at this bank, which was at the time the third largest bank in Brazil. And so basically, they got these management consultants to come down and, you know, try to tell them how to fix this problem. I'd never been on a trading floor before. I didn't know anything. I didn't even speak Portuguese. <laughs> Turned out their English language was very limited. Um, you know, the project was in many ways, um, I 
I thought kind of a joke, um, but that was sort of my uh, bizarre experience in finance world. And I started looking for more entrepreneurial things to do. And I had little side projects and hustles that uh, didn't really make sense in the context of like a very professional, busy, globally jet-setting job. But ultimately, found my way into working on this uh, company called Thumbtack.com on nights and weekends. And this was in 2008 when the financial crisis was hitting. And for a long period of time, I basically didn't have to show up to work. Um, I used to just wear my BlackBerry on like loud. And every time I got a boring email about some mundane thing, I'd jump to check it. And the idea was I could like uh, hop in a cab and run to the office if I had to, if I had to meet with anyone and pretend like I was just getting coffee and I was out for 20 minutes. And so I was working on Thumbtack for months like that until thankfully uh, in... I guess that was January 09. I got the great, very fortunate news that I was laid off, um, as happened to about two-thirds of my coworkers. I was just sticking around for the the bonus to leave anyway and, and go full-time on Thumbtack. And they gave me the bonus and a bunch more if I promised I wouldn't sue, which I had zero intention of doing. So uh, that was I, my experience getting laid off was that it was the best thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and it was funny to see different people's reactions. I remember there was a guy in the San Francisco office who we'd, we'd worked on this project in um, Hamilton, Bermuda together. And he didn't like the company. He was applying elsewhere. He'd already gotten a job offer um, that paid significantly more at a company that you would say you know was better. And he hadn't accepted yet. Everybody's offer for like what you have to sign to say you won't sue and what they'll pay you out is different based on your bonus and seniority. And I think his was like $70,000 they were going to give him. And he had a better job offer that he was going to take anyway. So mm-hmm. they were just going to pay him to, to quit effectively. Mm-hmm. And I remember he was crying. And I thought, like, <laughs> why are you crying? This is the, you're getting paid $70,000. You were about to put in your notice. And he said, well, what am I going to tell my parents? I'm so ashamed. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess I guess part of this is a way of saying that um, seeing the current crisis that is maybe not a recession is very bizarre what's happening right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm at least experienced with my friends all getting laid off and the bizarre experiences that happens when a boyfriend, girlfriend that work at the same company, one of them gets laid off and one of them doesn't. Um, maybe the one that got laid off was going to business school anyway and and um, is thrilled or or maybe it's the one who is going to business school and desperately wanted to get laid off and didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so that the dynamic in that uh, weird rent-seeking world is kind of strange. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's crazy how much you had to endure in order to like find your way to entrepreneurship. But or what caused you to leave Thumbtack, and then what what else did you do after that? Yeah, so I was working on Thumbtack for for three years. The first year we were in my co-founder's brother's house, and the next two years uh, we were in my house. And it was like eat, sleep, breathe Thumbtack, nothing else. Um, I remember at one point I realized I hadn't taken a day off in a hundred days. Um, and my thought wasn't like, oh, I need to, you know, I should, I should take a day off this weekend. It was just like, oh, that's an interesting observation. Um, (laughs) another point, my co-founders almost bet me a thousand dollars about whether I could not leave the apartment for a month because we worked from (laughs) home anyway. And from my perspective, we had fast internet. We had a chef come cook our meals 
and I just wanted to work. So <laughs> it was like, I, I can go a week without noticing. I think I could do a month. And um, fortunately, for longer story reasons, the bet never materialized um, because I later read their plans and they were going to shut off the water and the power. Uh, so I, I I don't know what would have happened. I'm stubborn, but that would have been challenging. So uh, yeah, Thumbtack was uh, an incredible experience. I had a side project at the time that was tracking all of the listing data on Craigslist. Mm -hmm. um, I used to be a prolific Craigslist buyer of used goods. Um, mm -hmm. So every you know big big screen monitor back when those were expensive, every air on chair, even, you know, random things like I'd get a conference table from a law firm um, mm. for free that might have been a $10,000 table when they bought it. Mm. Um, and, you know, I remember me and my co-founder like getting a zip car and rushing down to that one was in Santa Clara to pick up this table because we we're like, this is highway robbery. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I used to track all of this data on Craigslist. Um, and in fact, we did cross posting on Craigslist at Thumbtack and we um, messaged their users. That was one of our growth hacks. And I did get cease and desisted by them um, <laughs> and, and had a, a weird history with Craigslist. But I was sucking in all this data and I was buying all this stuff. I ended up like accidentally building this company called Priceonomics uh, that was a Y Combinator company that's still around, but now does very different things. And we built price guides for everything. So if you wanted to know what like a nine-year-old road bike that was $1,500 when you bought it was worth today, well, we had aggregated all the listings. And we mm. could tell you one went in Virginia for this much, you know, last month and another went in Seattle for that much. And so I got a, uh, an experience building like a web crawling SEO business, which Thumbtack was also an SEO business. Mm. Um, ultimately, this was not a great business idea and not successful. But uh, it did lead me down the path of writing code and building apps and ultimately to Bitcoin, which is the, uh, the best of, of everything that came before it. So mm. uh, I'm thankful for the experience. Hmm. Well, so these two companies, uh, Priceonomics and Thumbtack, what what were the capital structures like? What what was the money aspect, if you will, of uh, of the startup? What were the economics like? Yeah, so I I learned about this and I had no exposure, and I didn't even have that much exposure to rich people before doing this. And if you raise money, you know, there's not many people that are like, oh, here's a hundred grand, and like I just met you, and I don't really understand what you do. They, those are rich people. <laughs> uh, there's also funds, but VCs are also rich people. Um, so that that was a neat experience. And some of the bizarre things that you discover is that, um, or at least ten plus years ago, uh, wealth kind of is a factor. And mm. um, as much as anyone can raise money from like Y Combinator, and that is very very cool and a unique thing. There's a lot of friends and family money at the beginning. Mm. Nobody wants to invest in something that doesn't exist yet, and it's hard to get off the ground. Now, these days, it's a lot, a lot easier. If you write code, um, there are so many um, frameworks and platforms that you can push out an MVP very quickly and easy, but easily by yourself. We're no longer in the days of needing to raise seven figures to pay for an Oracle license and hire a DBA. Uh, <laughs> so that's that's very thankfully good. Um, but still, even just to have a good software engineer and a growth hacker hustler type and pay the rent and spend six to 18 months building a product, that that can be a hard limiting factor. And so a lot of times you see that friends and family money really matters. And so at Thumbtack, uh, one of our co-founders was very wealthy, him and his family uh, basically floated our first significant fundings. 
Um, and only much later, you know, Thumbtack has has raised like 200 something million dollars from private equity funds and, and mutual funds. But in the beginning, it was it was friends and family money that really did it. Now, not exclusively, eventually Thumbtack raised money um, from like the Open Angel Forum organized by Jason Calacanis, who also invested. Um, mm. Naval and Nivy, the brothers who started AngelList, personally invested. And so we had a lot of investors, but um, it's easy to rewrite that history and say it was this like perfect thing. We had a rich co-founder whose family put in a lot of money. And that was part of what attracted me uh, to the opportunity was that we had money lined up. Then fast forward to Priceonomics, I raised $1.7 million uh, going through YC from entirely people that I didn't know. Um, and it was that neat YC experience where Demo Day is like a feeding frenzy. Um, all of these investors want to invest right after these companies present before they um, fill up their rounds and they're no longer taking money. Um, and so... <laughs> I don't take my money in. <laughs> oh, man. That, you get the weirdest experiences. Like, I remember one investor came up to me and he um, was was great and did invest and I, I like this person. Um, but it, like his opening pitch was, hi, uh, I know MC Hammer and mm-hmm. I might be able to get him to endorse your product. And I just remember thinking like, that this what bizarre world am I living in that people are like coming up to me and begging me to take their money and telling them like, maybe I'll get an endorsement from MC Hammer or something, um, which we did not get and wouldn't have made any sense, um, mm. but uh, speaks to that world. And, and now I'm on the other side of it and I understand it too, where I just invested in a YC company last week and um, I'd like to say that it was like this perfectly diligenced investment where I spent a hundred hours pouring over their certified financials and playing with their product and interviewing the team and doing my diligence. But the reality is, if you want to write a small check um, from like a YC alum, uh, your key feature has to be that you move incredibly quickly because they're talking to funds that want to take the whole round and wouldn't leave, leave any room for you. So mm-hmm. you just kind of vibe it out. And you're like, well, product seems cool. Founder seems impressive. Let's give it a go. <laughs> um, YC has made it so incredibly easy to raise money that now the the ball really is in the founder's court, which is pretty mm-hmm. cool for the founder at least. The the money part of startups is the thing that's always been crazy for me. Uh, I, I mean, I, I'm a little older than you are, so I, my my first exposure was like in '98, and at least back then, uh, you know, the VCs took like an enormous chunk of the money. Um, and we we had a similar thing like you did, where uh, the CEO of the or the founder of the company basically had some family money uh, come in for some amount. So we were able to get off the ground that way. But once, once the VCs came in, I mean, they took such a huge chunk. And what's been interesting, I think that I've been observing over the past 20 years is that, you know, because of the competition or something, it, it seems it, the VC chunk of the money has been steadily tr- shrinking. You know, I, um, Back in 98, I think they took well over 50% of the company. I, I imagine in 2008, they took a decent amount, but they didn't take 50%. And nowadays, um, you know, like 10, 20% is standard for the entire round, like Series A or, uh, or Seed or Series A. So what yeah. do you, you think is happening? Um, I mean, basically, the, it's a supply and demand thing. And there's a large supply of capital mm. um, that's chasing fewer and fewer deals. And so... 
Uh, or I don't want to say that it's necessarily fewer deals, but the supply of capital has grown faster because everybody wants exposure to alternative investments. Mm. And a big part of that, um, which fits into the theme of your show, is fiat money. Mm. We're all sitting on this money that's that's getting inflated away every year. It's burning a hole in our pocket. Mm. We're looking at the stock market saying, hey, wait a minute, these P ratios don't make any sense. <laughs> this, this doesn't feel like I'm investing in future cash flows. This feels like I'm just auto-parking uh, X percent of my paycheck every month into some either target date fund or now index fund or potentially robo advisor. Um, but I'm effectively storing value. It's not a hundred percent store of value. It's not a, a pure store of value. There's all kinds of manipulation that can happen. Companies could issue more stock and government could come in and uh, backstop an industry or not, and we see winners and losers get picked. But generally speaking, I'm I'm getting a some chunk of the future cash flows, um, and so that sounds very nice. But then when everybody does this, it starts <laughs> being completely divorced from the actual cash flows. So for many years, you know, investors are are looking at what's happening in the world, saying, "Okay, I want to put two percent of my portfolio in alternatives." Not not massive numbers. Um, but if it's 2% of Harvard's endowment, that becomes a big number. Uh, it's 2% of the, the teacher's pension fund. That's a big number. Uh, you know, 2% of your or my portfolio is probably not going not gonna to impact uh, the world, but those endowments do. And so all of a sudden, you see checks flowing in to these VC funds, and then they got to deploy the capital. And strangely, uh, this is part of how we see valuations get bid up, because the VC model is that the partner must take a seat on the board. That's kind of what they're selling. Like you're not investing in the VC for them to go buy Apple stock. Uh, they're supposed to invest in companies where they have deep relationships. They're on the board. They're following the company. They know what's happening and they've done their diligence. And that's also important because if the company goes belly up, they need to be able to defend their investment and many of their investments will fail. So they have to have this board seat and this diligence and this this oversight and control. But you can only be on so many boards simultaneously. You can't be on 100 boards. So what you tend to see is that um, a, v- a VC who has a very long length in their fund, you know, that this fund is an eight or 10 year fund, they might only be able to make one or two investments a year um, over that time period before they're stretched too thin. Uh, mm-hmm. Plus, VCs don't work very hard, so <laughs> they, don't, they don't want to challenge themselves. But they'll put their you know associate on the board as an observer and, and make them do most of the work. But even still, they're constrained in how many boards they can be on. So what they've what they've been doing for many many years is they'll say, "Look, I can only make so many investments, and I have a lot of cash to deploy. So I want to write big checks to companies, and I don't care what the price is. If, if we have a three hundred million dollar fund, I can't write hundred thousand dollar checks." I have to write seven-figure checks and preferably eight-figure checks. So why don't I write a bigger check and get a big chunk of the ownership while simultaneously doing it at a really high valuation so that the dilution isn't that bad for the entrepreneur? And so that's what what the background of what's been happening, and that's part of where you see these high valuations. Also, though, it is an industry that's producing real unicorns. I mean, companies that didn't exist 10 years ago uh, are now household names. And so there are some real returns tied to that. It's not it's not just financial engineering. There's a reason why I occasionally <laughs> invest in startups. And there's also a competitive nature that while the VCs may be doing this, you don't have to do a VC funded round. So what you were saying before, it was completely true that 
in the 90s, it was normal for a VC to get a majority control of a company at the idea stage. Mm. Um, it was normal for companies to go public and for the founder CEO, uh, founding CEO to have like one or 2% of the company. Mm. And now we're seeing with the Zuckerbergs and the Spiegels of the world, uh, founder CEOs having much more control and ownership when the company goes public. And that's because capital has become very abundant. So you have all of these investors competing and you effectively get uh, lower dilution for the founder and higher valuations as a result. And so if you look at like Y Combinator batches for the last several years, it's totally normal for a company to only be diluted 15% versus 20 years ago, it would have been 50 plus percent. Mm. And I tell this to founders all the time who are deeply valuation and dilution conscious as they should be, it's it's their baby, that they are getting a better deal than every single unicorn that they're trying to emulate. <laughs> because they tend to look at it and say, well, this other company in my batch or this other company on TechCrunch or this competitor of ours raised at a higher price, um, so I should get that price too. And by all means, chase the best price you can get, that's your right. But it's probably not going to be the defining feature of whether that company is successful or not. Um, the really important thing is everything that happens between funding rounds. You know, did they grow their user base 10 or 100 fold? Are they making real revenue? Are they profitable? You know, those types of questions are what determine what your valuation and dilution will be in the next funding round, not whether you're getting diluted 15% or 20% today. Yeah. Although people hear that and they just say, well, you're investing. So you want them to have more <laughs> dilution and you want to have more ownership. Um, and, and I, I can't prove that that's not the case, but I think the data says that uh, I'm I'm not out to get them, and that they're getting uh, investments on far better terms than than any of their startups they idealize. And you know, you can look back to the famous Sequoia picture of Steve Jobs raising money, and he's holding the check, and it's the big show moment. You can tell he's pissed; <laughs> he's getting his face ripped off, and he knows it. But that that was his access to capital at the time. Airbnb, most famously, when they raised $600,000 from Sequoia, they gave up a third of the company. Mm. Can you imagine buying a third of Airbnb for $600,000? Oh my God, where do I sign? Hindsight is twenty twenty, so we, we know what happened to Airbnb afterwards. Uh, but there's something I want to talk about uh, that, that you mentioned, which is that there is this pressure to become a unicorn, isn't there? there uh, like These VCs don't want to put in any money unless there's a potential for it to be at least a billion dollars. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that is 100% their model. Um, and the idea is that most of the companies they invest in are going to fail. Some are going to be uh, base hits, You know, maybe return their capital, and, and then some, maybe even a 200% return. And then some tiny minority are going to be grand slam home runs, uh, unicorns, or now I see the focus has moved more to decacorns, companies <laughs> that could be worth $10 billion. And it's kind of the unfortunate reality of the nature of their business. Mm. So if you look at um, Y Combinator, and I keep using them as an example because I think they do a great job. Uh, I'm an alumni. I, I like how they've improved startups and the startup ecosystem. I think they're they're generally a good actor. And if you look at their model, they they publish their winners pretty much. I mean, they're not totally transparent in, in every in all their investments, but they, they're a private company and they, they don't have to be. I, I believe the last time I looked at the stats, Dropbox was responsible for more of their returns than the rest of their companies combined. That, <laughs> that stat may be out of date now. Um, but then when you remove Dropbox from it and you said, okay, let's pretend they didn't invest in Dropbox, Airbnb is now responsible for more profit than the rest of their companies combined. 
So the business model just becomes, how do I get that Airbnb? How do I get that Dropbox? And because of that, the FOMO is palpable. (laughs) I'd rather make five bad investments just to be sure I'm in the one good one. That's where you do get a lot of bizarreness, both culturally and in terms of terms. You know, that's how you get the WeWorks of the world where um, people are investing in insanity because they can't tell and you don't, you don't want to miss out on that. Uh, what if it is, you know, the next Tesla or whatever? Hmm. And do you think that uh, we're kind of in a bubble here? Because in a sense, like startup valuations have been going up higher and higher. And what used to be considered like Series B became Series A. Now it's like a seed round. If you're if you're not getting at least two million in a seed round, it, it feels like you're a failure or something. It's kind of uh, it's a weird shift that I'm seeing it where now pre-seed is what used to be seed and friends and family rounds are significantly more and so on. Yeah, it's a weird thing in that these letters have become meaningless because it used to just be, they were just alphabetical series numbers. So you'd have a series A and then a B and then a C and then a D. But A had a meaning. It it meant a certain number of millions of dollars, not definitionally, just just in practice. Then we got series AA and then series C became popular. And when someone says to me that they're raising like an A round, I just don't even know what that means. Like it could be $300,000. It could be like $20 million. <laughs> and it's it it really has um, increased quite a bit. Bubble's a, a tricky one because a bubble implies that there will be a bursting as opposed to a deflating. Um, we might just be in a distortion where we do have these skews um, where we have all this printed money. It's got to go somewhere. Uh, there's obvious reasons why you don't want to put it in stocks. I, I didn't mention bonds before, but those are negative yields. I think uh, it was Howard Mark, the famous billionaire investor, who called it return-free risk. The <laughs> idea that you would pay the U.S. government to hold your money over a 10-year period is like kind of magical. It tells you what a distorted reality we live in. But I'm also not saying it's a bubble that's going to burst. I think the Treasury will always pay back that money. They'll just do it through inflation. So... I, th- I tend to think of it more as a dis- price distortion than a bubble, but obviously these are just semantic terms, and um, it's real, real weird that that much is clear. <laughs> we live in weird times, and I think this is actually one of your points really resonated with me was that it's it's strange that we all have to become economists now. Mm-hmm. You know, wouldn't it be an easier world if I could just focus on what I'm good at in business and say just park all of my money in Bitcoin? You know, people can do that. So it's great that we have Bitcoin, but Bitcoin is in its early nascent stages. It's highly speculative. You know, if you were at the end of your life and, and a retiree and you, you were living on a fixed income, you know, putting all your money in Bitcoin might not be a reasonable thing to do. Whereas a previous generation on a gold standard might have been perfectly comfortable putting everything in gold because it is the gold standard. And so we could, we could see a world like that again in the future if Bitcoin's successful. And when I talk to investors, it's the same game of like, what are you investing in? Because everywhere is speculative and scary. And <laughs> I, I don't even feel like I invest anymore because investing implies that it's non-speculative and based on cash flows. And when I look at the world, there's sort of a greater fool theory in everything where it's like, well, if something goes bad, more people would put money in here. So even if the cash flows don't back it up, um, it's probably a good bet. You know That, that exact argument was used... Um, I live in Austin, Texas, and that exact argument has been used here in, re- in in real estate for many, many years. That, hey, the cap rate on this real estate deal might be 2%. 
you know, that's really lousy in terms of putting your money to work. Um, but it's probably not going to go down. And if things go bad, you know, people will want to be in Austin even more. And, and that <laughs> argument has been largely true. Um, you know, if you look at the last year, Austin real estate's up somewhere on the order of 8%. Obviously, it varies. You know, downtown is not doing as well as like lake houses are doing great. Um, and there's neighborhood by neighborhood um, distortions. But as a general rule, that statement was true. You know, we have Tesla moving to Austin. Um, we have all of these companies like Apple expanding their operations. Everyone is fleeing California and New York. Uh, I don't think a week has gone by for the last four months where I haven't gotten a contact from a very interested Californian or New Yorker who's asking <laughs> me questions about, you know, everything from what's life like to how do I get rid of the franchise tax board in California or the New York <laughs> Department of Taxation and Finance um, who uh, do not want to let you go. And, you know, they are very aggressive organizations that will that will track you down and claim that uh, regardless of where you where you um physically live or how you live your life that in your mind you're still a resident of those places and they're going to go after people hard and they have um in the past now the incentive is much much stronger um but there have been famous cases like in new york for example where a person who didn't set foot in the state of new york for an entire year is still deemed a resident in their mind um <laughs> and new york state has won that amongst many other bizarre bizarre cases and now california wants a retroactive wealth tax so were those people buying in Austin five years ago, speculating or investing? I mean, their prediction may have come true and they make money off of that. So that that sounds investing like, but it's really bizarre. You know, we're so detached from the world of like, I'm gonna make widgets and people want to buy these widgets, and here's what it costs for me to make these widgets, and here's how I can market and sell these widgets. That that just feels like a bygone era. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because what you're saying totally is correct, which is that it used to be that you invest in a business because of the fundamentals, because of the profit margin, and you can get uh, you know a dividend or something like that. Uh, and it, it, right now, it's all speculative. It's based on the value of the thing going up, and that's the only value that really matters. It used to be that you would invest in real estate so you can get a return off of the rent. Now it's all about investing in real estate because somebody else will come in and buy it for a higher price. Um, and it, it, it's weird, but uh, it, it, this seems to me like something that's coming out of the fiat money printing and having all of this excess money that needs somewhere to go. Would you agree that's what's happening? Yeah. And I, I think it's I think it's actually really sad and tragic and something that in decades we'll look back on as a turning point when the US kind of uh, when we realize the US lost its edge. Because we lost it a long time ago, but now <laughs> now it's very, very visible and it's it's to the point where a lot of the things we do are unrecognizable to previous generations. And so I think this is a very scary part of the transition to a, from, a, from a capitalist economy to a managed economy, because it's not a bubble that bursts. The US really can print an infinite amount of money, and the men with guns can tell people what to do. And, and that continues to be true always. So you know we, we are so wealthy, and we are so far ahead, and we have so many advantages in our favor that the sky is not falling. The, the U.S. will continue to be a prosperous place to live for many, many years. But at the same time, the Venezuelan stock market has never not been at all-time highs. Does that make it a good place to park your money? 
because that's kind of the direction that we're headed in over the long term of many decades. Again, we're all going to be fine now. Thankfully, there's Bitcoin. So that's that's the only opt-out investment. It's the only thing that I'm excited about. I think it's criminally undervalued. I've never been more bullish on Bitcoin. But I'm incredibly transparent that investing in Bitcoin is speculative. It's highly speculative because you're betting on a future store of value. Um, that bet seems real good to me, but it's mm. a bet. Yeah, it is interesting, though, because in a sense, everything else is also speculative. So if it's all speculative, why not invest in, in the one that has the best chance of winning that speculative race, if that makes sense? Yeah. And one of the, the greatest things about watching Bitcoin for the last few years is the way its mainstream understanding and narrative have changed. Um, obviously, we're still going to have new shitcoins and new scams <laughs> every year forever. A sucker is born every moment. And it's probably not going to be Litecoin or Dogecoin or ETH or EOS or Tron or IOTA or some DeFi thing. The next thing's going to be some other thing that is purportedly different. Um, so, so those scams will never go away. But um, the knowledge that of what Bitcoin is um, has become universal. Even shitcoiners will tell you Bitcoin is a very scarce, provably scarce digital gold. That's what it is. And we're seeing adoption now uh, based on the establishment of that narrative that is so exciting. So I look at things like Paul Tudor Jones, who is not a crypto guy, not a blockchain guy, not a tech guy. He's just a global macro hedge fund guy uh, who's made some very good bets in his life. And, and he is a billionaire. Interestingly, he also tax refugeed himself and left New York in 2015 or 16, I believe. And his uh, office in Greenwich, Connecticut, uh, is basically deserted at this point. Connecticut is in a death spiral uh, for many years that Chicago is, is on the verge of becoming, and California and New York have many years ahead of them before they, before they become. Um, but anyway, uh, Paul Tudor Jones, well, that's a fun story because he bought a $70 million mansion in Florida <laughs> <laughs> and just said, you know what? I'm limiting myself to 30 days a year in New York, and uh, I don't want to deal with New York anymore. And that's just amazing. I, I love that he can opt mm. out. Uh, so he puts, he says, 1% to 2% of his net worth in Bitcoin. And that is such a strong statement. I mean, one of the biggest complaints about Bitcoin that's very legitimate for many years is that we don't have credible mainstream Bitcoiners. Mm. All the Bitcoiners are kind of fringe people with something that's a little bit different about them. And, and <laughs> I wear that as a badge of honor, but I recognize that you hang out with Bitcoiners, you will see weird stuff. And that's not confidence-inspiring for mainstream investors. And now that everyone knows what Bitcoin is, and we're starting to see the Paul Tudor Joneses of the world or the micro-strategies of the world go long on Bitcoin in a meaningful way, it becomes very clear what the next move is, at least in the eyes of Bitcoiners. Mm. What's so scary is that we are now speculating on speculation. This is <laughs> naked speculation at its core. And, and Bitcoin is the best speculative asset in human history. Uh, you know, Obviously, it has the monetary properties, the uh, portability, durability, divisibility, recognizability, scarcity, those, those properties where it, it crushes other stores of value. Um, but they are so speculative. And so it's a weird game of sitting around seeing how other people are going to move. And you know, if there's a virus or a war or a crash or a boom, or who knows what's going to happen in the future, how will people react to Bitcoin? And in the long run, I'm incredibly bullish. In any of those events, 
I couldn't tell you. Bringing it back to sort of the original topic, which is entrepreneurship, how do you think being able to use Bitcoin as the speculative asset changes this dynamic that we're seeing in the startup world where, you know, the hot companies get bid up? It's totally a Pareto distribution where, you know, one, uh, like you said, uh, one company gets, uh, you know, is most of the winner. So there's um, this drive to invest in the best company that you can find and put insane amounts of money into it. How does that change as this, um, you know, speculative bubble sort of moves over to Bitcoin and, you know, there isn't as much money there for that? Yeah. Well, I think we're a long way from seeing a change um, because it's easy to look at it from a Bitcoiner's perspective and say, wow, Bitcoin has had this amazing 11-year run. Mm. Um, it's so great, all the things that are happening. It's it's like delivering on its promises and it's so exciting. But Bitcoin is still so tiny. You know, Apple is a $2 trillion company. Bitcoin is not a $2 trillion enterprise, uh, you know, which which affects me more personally. Like if Bitcoin versus Apple went away tomorrow... I mean, I'd be bummed if I had to switch phones, but like I've had Android in the past, it, w- it wouldn't be a problem. <laughs> um, if Bitcoin went away, I'd say like, where's humanity's hope? <laughs> um, so, so that gets back to my personal belief that Bitcoin is, is criminally undervalued. If we were in a world where Bitcoin's valuation was up, you know, on the order of 100x, um, and it was being used by corporates, by nation states, by individuals, um, and and it had this sort of de facto gold standard like uh, existence, um, which which I am optimistic and hopeful will come. If we had that world, then you could just park your money in Bitcoin. And again, that example of a seventy year old or eighty year old retiree putting their savings in Bitcoin wouldn't be crazy. Whereas today, you know. When a boomer asks me about Bitcoin, I'm like, well, I love it, but I don't know if it's for you. But the thing that uh, that's interesting to me, and uh, I'm starting to see this a little bit, is that especially among crypto funds, um, they're having to justify to their LPs why uh, the investments that they're making are better than Bitcoin. Because that's almost the first question a lot of these LPs ask is, why am I putting my money with you if I can get this return in Bitcoin? What, like, what are you doing to add value on top of Bitcoin? Their, their baseline seems to have changed. Yeah. And that's one of the nice parts about Bitcoin's narrative uh, and purpose being broadly recognized is that it, it has taken on the role of the reserve asset of the cryptocurrency economy. And I hate talking about cryptocurrency because <laughs> anything that's not Bitcoin is almost assuredly a scam. But it is true that these scammers know what the best asset is, and they want Bitcoin. Um, and so you see that in subtle ways, you know, from how order books are priced to the reality that when people pull off an exit scam, they exit into Bitcoin. Hmm. Um, and, it, and it makes sense. I want the money that everyone wants, and that's Bitcoin. So um, I look at, at that world and I think, okay, this is going to go well for Bitcoin. This is like one more sign that the stars are aligning. You know, MicroStrategy did not buy shit coins. I think there was a time in 2017 where the narrative uh, was still very unformed and a very popular opinion amongst the Silicon Valley VC types was the next Bitcoin. Um, because you kind of saw things in, in parallels of centralized companies, which are obviously different to a Bitcoiner, but to an outsider, it's a tech investment and you look at like MySpace getting beat by Facebook and you think, <laughs> I want to invest in the next MySpace, the Facebook. You know, Google beat 
AltaVista and Yahoo. I, I want to invest in the next Yahoo. I don't want to invest in the old Yahoo. And then there's all these other you know, stupid things like unit bias where they're like, ah, oh, Bitcoin, that's you know, thousands of dollars. Like, I'm going to buy this shitcoin for $10 and I'll buy a bunch of them. And um, it's, it's amazing that that, uh, that unit bias that is absolute nonsense. I mean, obviously, it's only about percentage of the pie is so powerful. Um, but but it is we that's that's how human psychology works, and so um, in 2017 we just saw this rush for the next Bitcoin, and and I saw this sell um, at the time I was living in New York, and I would talk to some of my friends that worked in traditional finance, and it was amazing how predictably they all described what were essentially shitcoin hedge funds in in positive terms, because <laughs> they they all started with it's the next Bitcoin. Then they said, I don't have to custody and I don't have to deal with any accounting. That sell just really, really resonated because they're used to paying people to give them advantages. And so they would figure that there's somebody out there who has an advantage in what the next Bitcoin is going to be. And so they'll just pay to invest in that person. Um, And that sort of reeks of a rent-seeking style investment where you're used to having to pay to get into a club and get access to better deals. But fortunately, now accounting for Bitcoin's understood. I wouldn't say it's easy, but it's it's understood. And if you're a big enough fund, uh, there's you know you can hire professionals that will just take care of this for you. Custody is in the same group. You can do, uh, you know, if you want to own your own keys, you can use like a Casa Unchained style multisig, uh, not without some asterisk issues there. Um, for people who know me, they know that I'm very deep into multisig and Bitcoin, and uh, there are some challenges with any uh, third party. But uh, you can use something like that, which resonates really well to a lot of institutions, or you can just go fully trusted and do like a GBTC Coinbase um, type thing, which again, I deep reservations about that. Um, but you know, most people just want exposure to the to the price of the asset class. They don't want to actually own Bitcoin and and have this insurance policy that money can't buy, um, and and they're okay with that. So that narrative from 2017 of I'm going to buy the next Bitcoin, I'm going to get custody dealt with for me, I'm going to get accounting um, and reporting done for me, it just doesn't really make sense, especially in the context of these crypto hedge funds blowing up and and underperforming. And Mm -hmm. so uh, a sucker is born every minute and there will be a new scam, uh, but I don't think we're going to see that one again. Mm. It is interesting uh, that uh, so many VCs and so many funds uh, sort of see Bitcoin as kind of a tech play when it's actually not. It, it, it's very different. Uh, they, they're familiar, of course, with the things that they invested in, whether you know it's uh, Facebook or Google or whatever, like the big winners in the last 20 years. Do they have to change some part of their mentality? What, what's the thing that's limiting them from seeing Bitcoin for what it is? Yeah, I think most realistically, they're they're never going to understand um, until Bitcoin has already become successful, because they look at the world through this lens of startups. And there's sort of a a paradigm of how you see inherently very centralized startups. And I don't mean that in a bad way. You know, PayPal is centralized, Uber is centralized. And that may affect how you want to use those services as a consumer. But as an investor, that's been phenomenally powerful. you know, companies like Amex and MasterCard and Visa make a ton of money. And so they just want to be the Amex, MasterCard, and Visa of crypto. Um, and that's that's how they see the world. Decentralization is like this anathema to them. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit their model. They've never profited off it. 
And the only thing they can compare it to is the Linux graybeards of the 90s who said, no, don't use Microsoft. <laughs> and they, they are like, this is irrelevant. We, we don't care about this. But when it comes to a, a currency, you want the money that other people want. And it's very hard. I wouldn't even say very hard. It's impossible, I think, to go from a centralized money to a decentralized one. Um, we only tend towards centralization over time. And uh, Bitcoin is head and shoulders above everything else in, in decentralization. Uh, if you truly understand how it works, there there is no, there's nothing that's like a, a close second. And so there's there's only one decentralized scarce commodity in the world, and it's Bitcoin. Mm. What do you think investment within more of a Bitcoin standard looks like? Because right now, uh, you know, as you were saying, so much of it is based on this unicorn or DECA unicorn model where you have to find the one company out of, uh, you know, two years worth of startups that's going to make it. And you have to make sure you have invested in that so that you get the returns that you need. Like, how, how does that change? What, what, what happens, do you think? Yeah, so I don't know, this might be my controversial opinion, but I don't know if it changes all that much. I think what Bitcoin really does is forces governments to become more competitive. Mm. Um, so the real change is that if we start to see that regulation for who can invest in a company becomes so absurd um, that that people are just um, investing outside the US in companies that are uh, under questionable regulatory regimes using Bitcoin as their investment, well, the US will have to respond to that. And we kind of see that with the changing rules around startup investment um, as of like five-ish years ago. Not saying that Bitcoin specifically drove that, but just when government regulators look uh, are embarrassed, that's when they act. And <laughs> so um, Bitcoin is going to cause a lot of embarrassment for a lot of people uh, who deserve it, who are, who are long overdue. Um, and so, you know, my big hope is that they embarrass the crap out of uh, central banks. I think the reality is central banks cannot change their behavior. There's no world in the US where, where this ship is going to turn around. We have to print so many more dollars in the future. It's, it's to satisfy our unfunded liabilities. I mean, sure, we have $6 trillion in new debt this year, and that is a scary thing. I mean, a trillion dollars is so much money. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I don't think we're like out of the woods on, on this... Um, potential recession here. So I, I imagine there's going to be more stimulus and more stimulus and more stimulus, you know, more people being paid more to not work than they were being paid to work. And politicians promising you more money than the other guy, because the other guy's an asshole if he doesn't promise you this much <laughs> money. Um, and, and no one's really going to vote against free money. Uh, not no one, but the majority likes their free stuff. So, um, you know, I look at that on top of this, this cascading unfunded liabilities um, that has been a structural problem for decades. I mean, Social Security is a Ponzi scheme, very transparently and directly. <laughs> um, and so I look at the inevitable outcome of that as uh, central banks are going to have to print more money. So in that sense, Bitcoin is amazing because I don't see that changing. You know, I, I think the number one competition to Bitcoin is central banks getting their house in order. And that's just not going to happen anywhere. I, I can't think of an instance where it has before a catastrophe hit. Um, so that in that way, it's good, but still around the edges, we're going to see more regulatory competition, um, because it's going to be embarrassing if Bitcoin outperforms every single company. So we'll see, um, crazy regulation that really doesn't make sense. Um, we'll see lots and lots of that, but we'll also see the lifting of some, uh, bad regulation that, that wasn't really impactful and didn't have that many winners and losers anyway. 
Um, so, um, but fundamentally to the question about unicorns or not, it's really hard to manage a company and to take it from good to great. It's much easier to bet on what's going to be the next great company. Um, and so it, it's just fundamentally very hard to invest in a small business and have the right protections. And a classic case of this is a CEO pays themselves a million dollar bonus one year on a million dollars <laughs> of profit. And if you're writing a you know fifty thousand dollar check to your local coffee shop five years ago, you're just not going to have the investment protections or oversight or board seat or know how to really. Um, make them great managers and align incentives fairly. Whereas the unicorns do because they always need more capital and the investors for all the negatives before about their limited ability to serve on boards, the positive part is that that does provide oversight and incentive alignment um, and they have transparent ways to deal with things um, to prevent self-dealing that you see in, in, I don't want to say non-regulated markets, but in ones that don't have the incentive structure. So if you look at how professional VCs, who it's easy to crap on, uh, handle <laughs> themselves compared to like uh, crypto funds, it's it's totally different. I mean, in, in professional VC world for two decades, every single startup has had vesting. Uh, typically, that's a four-year vest and a one-year cliff. That means employees or founders have to stick around for four years to earn their equity. And if they leave early, um, they'll have some pro rata portion of their equity, but they'll give up some. And, and that makes sense to align incentives, that if you don't stick around and contribute to the long haul of this company, you don't deserve equity, which is for you know long haul. That's we, we make money when we go public type, type incentive. Um, that really does make sense. And VCs um, require that type of thing. Many of them will be in their bylaws that they just can't even invest in a company that doesn't have incentives. Find me an ICO that uh, clawed back equity from a departed founder, and I'll find you a hundred examples of a founder who left early, sometimes for for seemingly good reasons, but kept all the equity upside. And in the extreme cases, for terrible reasons, you know, they just abandoned their project put up the word penis on the homepage and ran off with the money <laughs> and you can do that. So um, I think uh, probably the the most impactful thing is to be getting rid of those scammer types. Um, I think it's going to be a lot harder to, to have uh, professional style investing of your local coffee shop. Um, but uh, I would love to be wrong about that. Hmm. Yeah. I, I'm, I, I guess what I'm asking more about is uh, if as we approach something like hyper Bitcoinization, where people realize like, okay, all of this stuff is speculative anyway. And th this is the one thing, this is, this is basically the Google investment or the Facebook investment. And, you know, why, why am I investing in all this other stuff? Um, as capital flows towards Bitcoin, uh, a lot of that doesn't go towards VCs. And at that point, they have a limited amount of capital and they have to deploy it better than they are right now, which is more or less sort of like a machine gun style, you know, let's let's just see what hits uh, among all of these. Uh, once in a while, you get, you get uh, funds that are a little more into due diligence, uh, but usually these things become very clicky where if Sequoia is investing in something, everybody wants in on that. Um, it's it's very weird in that way. Um, as we get more towards, uh, you know, sort of a hyper Bitcoinization where more capital is flowing that way, 
like what what happens to this startup ecosystem? I mean, like to a degree, a lot of them, honestly, will, will they even get funded? Will there be more startups like that? Or I, what, what's going to change? Yeah, I, actually, I do think that's a, a very good point that I uh, maybe didn't didn't really properly address before. Mm-hmm. Um, but as as there becomes less of a need to get rid of your dollars, you know, just give them to somebody at all costs type environment, there's going to be more of a skepticism because, hey, I can just hold my money in Bitcoin and I don't I don't need to make this investment. Um, and I am constantly surprised at how much just isn't how much investor protections aren't there, even in professional mainstream investments. Mm. And it always does strike me as odd. Um, as much as I love Y Combinator commodifying the process and improving it in so many ways, they are insanely founder friendly. Um, having raised money as a Y Combinator founder, I can just say that's a, that's a fact. It is it is great to be the founder raising money in YC. Um, but the flip side is I don't invest in nearly in me- as many YC companies as I would like to um, because I don't have the same level of um, protection, say, as a later stage or larger investor would. And that's always struck me as a weird balance. You know, if I'm taking someone's money, I really want to earn them their return. Obviously, legally, you know, they're putting money at risk and it's only recourse is the company. But just on a personal level, the the dynamic there, you know, if someone gives me money, I, I basically view myself as indebted to them forever, which which maybe <laughs> is unfair or unrealistic because that's not the expectation. Um, but you know, I I have, you know, if somebody has written me a large check and they ever want to ask me anything, I will respond right away. That's just that just seems like a basic uh, human decency level. And um you know, there were weird shenanigans in YC companies. Uh, not not to disparage them. Y- YC is great, um, but you know, examples of um, people raising money from investors and saying like "you're welcome" instead of "thank you." <laughs> <laughs> um, and really, you know, I think that is um, putting the cart before the horse. But it is possible because we have this environment, and mm-hmm. so in a different macroeconomic environment, um, you know, it might be much more transparent. Um, for people to follow best practices very, very thoroughly and consistently to avoid even an appearance of impropriety. Um, and um, whereas right now, so many deals get thrown together on sketchy paperwork really quickly with terms that don't perfectly align incentives. Um, and it's just amazing how common that is. Yeah, it's interesting because, in a sense, like the whole startup world is. Based on someone choosing you, right? Like uh, you, you have to present correctly, and um, and I liken this to like getting into college or uh, going along any sort of professional path, and that to me makes me a little bit sad because, in a sense, the entire entrepreneurial path is supposed to be one where it's all entirely based on merit, whether or not you are creating a product that fits the market, and not whether or not you are able to impress this VC or that person. Um, and that that always struck me as like some, something's off about this. If even this sector of the economy, which should have the most innovation, the most sort of free-spirited, like, uh, you know, creativity and so on, uh, is kind of gatekept by, uh, by people that, uh, you know, and there's all these rules of propriety and all, all this other stuff, which have grown around it, which honestly wasn't there before. Um, you know, I mean, someone like Steve Jobs, for example, that you brought up earlier, like he he definitely did not 
you know, do uh, like take the typical path. And, you know, he was very much the rebel. And, you know, he made a famous Apple commercial during the Super Bowl exactly about that. But, you know, entrepreneurship seems to have shifted uh, to something that's very, um, I don't know, formulaic, if it makes sense. Yeah. I mean, there is entrepreneurship of, of many, many types. And the majority of the stories fit the pattern that you're describing. But there still are these exceptional cases of like, GitHub raising uh, nine figures at a, I think it was $700 million valuation for their first funding round. Mm. How amazing is that? That somebody starts a company and bootstraps it to $700 million. Mm. Um, Now, maybe that's an incredibly niche thing where they were building software with very low costs and they were instantly ramen profitable. But there are a lot of opportunities where you can be instantly ramen profitable now. Um, And that's a very cool thing. So you have on one hand... Um, you do have these gatekeepers and this bizarre system, but on the other hand, the cost of starting a company has dropped through the floor. And so if you can write code, there's a lot of opportunities available to you. And by the way, you can learn to write code online for free without going to school. Um, so it's sort of a bifurcation where there's the standard path, which is in many ways getting worse. And there's options that previously didn't exist before that are in many ways incredible. Um, and it's up to the individual to navigate it, but I guess that's always been the case. Well, I do think the the alternate path becomes more prominent as this sort of like formal path of VC money, Series A, Series B, going public, all that stuff uh, becomes, I guess, more even. I mean, we're we're now talking about Deca unicorns. I mean, at some point, it's going to be like Senta unicorns <laughs> because of all the all, all the money printing. Like, it, it's just not realistic to you know create another Facebook or Google, like those companies come around like once, maybe once or twice every 10 years. It, it, it just seems so crazy that, that, that that's the only thing these people, that formal path really cares about. Like, what about the rest of the economy? Like, do, do you see more of that happening as we go towards Bitcoinization? Well, this, this might be one of my controversial or sad views, but mm-hmm. um, I don't see the level of productivity growth we've had in the past as uh, remotely sustainable into the future. And so I think so many of these companies like Google were once-in-a-generation events. Um, you know, Today, there's, there's search engine competitors. I use DuckDuckGo sometimes. I think it's a great product. Um, but we've already gone from not being able to search things on the internet to being able to search things. We, we're not going to get 10 times better search or these amazing productivity changing companies uh, in that field. Now, maybe we'll get them in the next thing. You know, maybe it's going to be drones or VR. AI or <laughs> VR or something. But, um, you know, we've seen famous examples like Peter Thiel um, for over a decade, I think, calling this out saying, like, hey, we were promised, you know, flying cars and we've got um, apps that you can tweet in. <laughs> productivity growth um, fundamentally isn't there. And what we did get was software ate the world and we got incredible one-time gains because we took manual processes that were done by expensive and inaccurate humans and we automated those. And there's so much room for that to get better. I mean, that that will be the story of our generation is we're going to have all this garbage software that just gets magical UXs over the next few decades, um, much slower than we'd like, but still amazing. Um, for the course of humanity. But improving UXs doesn't fundamentally alter the course of humanity. It just makes the software work together better and it'd be a little less grating to like do your taxes. So I think we're going to see much slower growth in the future. Uh, if I had to bet, it's 
the combination of all this money printing and the reduced productivity is it, we can almost look to Japan to see an example of what that might be like. And, um, you know, they call it the lost decade. And mm. I wouldn't be surprised if we experienced something much, much like that, um, which is a little bit, a little bit sad. It's, it's more fun to be going up <laughs> the curve as an empire than, than watching it stall out and decline. Well, I, to be fair, the lost decade was largely due to the insane money printing, and that happened with the yen, uh, with, with their establishment of a central independent central bank in Japan and so on. But yeah, uh, with regard to the U.S., that that may very well happen with the dollar. I don't know. It, it seems like there's a whole Bitcoin economy that 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 can sort of rise up. I, I'm I, I, I'm at least hoping for some people to create companies. Uh, you know, based on the savings that they make on, in Bitcoin, creating new goods and services and not needing to be a DECA unicorn in order to be successful and creating more sort of lifestyle-ish businesses that are smaller, but still providing lots of value. Um, and I, I don't know if I necessarily want another Google or Facebook. I mean, the, these giant companies actually, I think, have way too much power and uh, too much regulatory capture. I don't know. The, is that necessarily a bad thing? Yeah, I think it's it's just really messy because on the one hand, I look at Google and wow, do they make my life better? I mean, we scheduled this meeting um, using Google Calendar, and um, I still use Gmail as my main um, email platform. Although I do more of my communication on Signal, and Proton Mail is great, but I have so few friends that are on that that I don't even bother making it my main. Um, and you know, Google Maps is incredible. Um, even Google Docs and Google Sheets are fantastic. So they do have these negatives and the regulatory capture is real. Their um, position on China is, is morally very dubious. Um, but at the same time, they provide so much value to so many people, um, you know, allowing them to upload the photos from their cameras into the cloud and um, for free or very, very cheap and not have to pay for local storage and use machine learning to search for their memories these types of things are incredible. Um, so I think it's a, a tricky balancing act. These mega companies will always be able to deliver amazing software for almost nothing to us because the marginal cost is zero to them. Um, but then they will also be uh, more regulated. Um, I am very excited about the lifestyle businesses that that entrepreneurs can sprout up. Um, you know, I think yours is an example of that. You've you've done so well, and you know we're using a. a podcasting platform right now called Zencaster that I know very little about, but I've, I've used it in other podcasts before. And it's it's probably a great example of a, a small business that serves small businesses. And I'm sure it was uh, pretty affordable for you and that audio quality will be excellent. It's going to upload both sides of our conversation. And you know, I'm sure you're using other software to transcribe and syndicate to Spotify and Apple Podcasts and all that. Um, and it's amazing that you can do all of that with a cheap commodity computer and a $50 microphone. Um, so in that sense, it's a great example of it working really well. Mm. Yeah. All right. So a few final questions, uh, and you know, you can answer these however you'd like. Um, what are your long-term goals for Bitcoin? Oh, long-term. I mean, I want to see Bitcoin replace gold. That's, Mm. that's the challenge of, of, um, I think the next few decades because the long-term trends are so, so straightforward on this, um, you know, young people do not want physical gold. Um, old people do not want digital gold. And the old people are dying and the young people are inheriting and making their own money. So it seems very, very hard to imagine to me 
that um, the, today's millennials, when they're at their peak income earning, um, you know, in their 40s and 50s, are going to be putting it into gold or dollars or even the stock market um, for that matter. So um, now I don't mean that they won't be putting money into those things. I just mean on a percentage wise, they'll be allocating one, five, 10, 25% to Bitcoin. Um, and, and that's all we need to see Bitcoin be phenomenally successful. So um, I, I want to see Bitcoin um, become a serious asset um, that is every day used by normal people to store value. Doesn't necessarily mean they have to own their own UTXOs, although I would like them to. Um, but I'm sure we'll have custodial Bitcoin too, hopefully non non fractional. Um, and I, I want to see that world take over, and that would uh, incentivize central banks. It would provide pressure against them, but it would also allow for enormous freedom. A person who's fleeing Venezuela could take their life savings with them and know that they have liquidity to both buy and sell their Bitcoin on either end free open source software tools to help them do it and resources. Um, I, I can't imagine something better for humanity uh, than Bitcoin. So I, I just want to see it succeed. And the obvious way is when more and more people use it. Um, one of the things that gives me the most uh, hope or optimism for that is to talk to somebody who's a kid who, who maybe doesn't really remember a world before Bitcoin and mm-hmm. they can't understand a world without it. <laughs> and they certainly think it'd be weird to carry around a gold gold bar. That just is totally foreign to them. I mean, they they want to ride in an Uber. They don't want to own a car. Um, they want their money in digital format. They don't want a physical thing. Um, and so, and I look at that and I see all the factors of Bitcoin scarcity and its great monetary properties. And I look at the adoption happening all around the world. I think, I think it's really going to happen. Um, but... It's hard if you've been in this space a long time where, you know, I, I was more concerned that Bitcoin was going to be outlawed in 2013 than um, thinking, okay, is this going to replace gold and then the dollar? Um, mm. So it, it's almost hard to imagine just even getting there, let alone beyond. Um, but Bitcoin's doing so well that I think the path to taking on gold is real straightforward. Mm. So that's what I want to see. Okay. Well, uh, it's interesting because what what you said about old people dying and young people, um, you know, continuing to adopt Bitcoin, it reminded me of, uh, for some reason, of antique furniture, which uh, which, uh, used to be very, very expensive. But uh, there's apparently been a giant crash in that market as a lot of the older people that own this stuff, um, you know, like as they die off, they they can't find any buyers at these estate sales (laughs) because young people don't care about antique furniture. So, uh, I, I wonder if that's what's going to happen with gold, where uh, a lot of these older people that own lots of gold, as that comes on the market, I don't know, maybe may, maybe like, uh, say, a Peter Schiff, you know, at, uh, you know, he's like in his late 50s or something like that, 20, 30 years from now when he dies, all the gold he owns, well, like, is he necessarily going to find buyers? Yeah, I mean, I remember reading on Twitter that his uh, son had some Bitcoin. I don't know if that's true. I don't want to be repeating fake news. Uh, no, but no, it certainly it's, it's seems true. plausible. Uh, yeah, no, he he commented on his son's uh, tweet or something like that and saying, he, you know, I told him not to and he still did. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right, uh, second question. Uh, five years from now, what's your best and worst case scenarios for Bitcoin? Oh, the worst case is, is bleak. It's easy in the Bitcoin community to think that we got this thing in the bag and uh, it's gone so well. Um, I still think there's a lot of room for the government to make it hard enough on Bitcoiners to really discourage adoption that um, the own your own keys, buy non-KYC'd 
Bitcoin and store it with your guns libertarian crowd is not a large percentage of wealth. And so uh, even if that crowd goes all in on Bitcoin, um, which remarkably, like older libertarians are not into Bitcoin, um, mm. I, I question if you can be a libertarian and not own Bitcoin if you're, say, under 50 or 40. Um, but you kind of just have to give grandpa a pass that he's not going <laughs> to get it. And um, and that's just just what it is. Um, I think Safendine was the one who most clarified that to me. Um, when he was talking about economists and how, you know, none of his um, academic counterparts really endorse Bitcoin because they're too old, mm. and they've they've <laughs> made their reputation, they've made their understanding of the world, and it's just not going to change for them. Um, so, um, but uh, going back to the worst case for Bitcoin in five years, if Bitcoin were um, really aggressively hunted down by governments, who I just don't think they're that smart. I don't think they really understand the threat. Bitcoin's so widely adopted. Some of them hold it. Um, it seems hard to think that that could happen, but governments are also irrational and act on the whims of various leaders. Um, so, you know, and they when, act when they're really embarrassed, like you said. Yeah, also when they're embarrassed. Um, and so there's just a lot of room for wildcard there. Um, so that would really scare me if the government um, tried to outlaw Bitcoin. I mean, we saw them uh, outlaw gold. That that hmm. did happen in our history, um, so that that would sort of be my worst case. My best case scenario? Oh, it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, everyone rushes to exit the door on fiat and buys Bitcoin for all the reasons that they should. And you know, we keep seeing inklings that this is just going to work. We have more exchanges, more liquidity. Uh, we have, you know, as much as I don't like shit coins, these stable coins are great for providing liquidity to exchanges around the world. So if somebody in, you know, Australia or um, I'm trying to think of like, you know, not US, uh, not not just US driven companies, but somebody in like in Australia or New Zealand wants to place a $100 million buy for Bitcoin, um, that cross order book liquidity now exists thanks to stable coins and arbitragers. Um, so that's amazing that billionaires all over the world can just pursue this in their own uh, countries and they can they have custody options and they have hardware wallet options they have multi-sig um, they have the ability to do better anonymization of their coins um, I see all the stars just aligning for these people to be able to do this and if they sh they want to and I really think they should want to um, then we'll see that happening and obviously that means the price would go way way up um, so so that's what I'd like to see and then liquidity would become amazing um, we'd ha just have incredible depth, and then we could see Bitcoin uh, potentially on the horizon become used as a method of payment. Um, now, maybe not actual Bitcoins, maybe Lightning, um, maybe sidechains, maybe some other technology, maybe some custodial Bitcoin as well, where you'd have a you know a checking account with Bank of America and put uh, five hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin in there, and you know spend it over some time. And there's some trust issues there, um, but we could see Bitcoin really take off as a store of value. And, and be credibly looking at being used as a method of payment. And if I really want to be excited about Bitcoin's future, it would be to see a country, a central bank, hold it on their balance sheet. But I think that one's farther away than five years. I don't know. That might already be happening. All right. Uh, 20 years from now, um, how do you think Bitcoin affects entrepreneurship and startups? Hmm. Um. I, I do think they're they're not totally tied together that in in all regulatory and monetary regimes 
uh, people want to earn a return on their investment. They want to create new productive companies, uh, and entrepreneurs will will jump at the opportunity to to meet demand. So um, I think Bitcoin improves everything about the process. We could see less regulation. We could see less FOMO and and um, just getting rid of your dollars at all costs and more uh, diligence. And that diligence could lead to better protections and better incentive alignment. Um, but I think fundamentally, um, entrepreneurs are are kind of, you know, the the ICO hustlers are all entrepreneurs too. And if they weren't <laughs> pitching ICOs, they'd be pitching some other MLM um, or some other snake oil or some other Kickstarter or some other product. Some of which may be good. Um, not all of them are necessarily terrible, um, but the vast majority of them are. And um, I, I think that will always be true. It will always be a buyer beware world when it comes to investing, as it should be. Mm. All right. Uh, where can people find you? Best way to find me is on Twitter. Uh, it's like my name, at mflaxman. Uh, it's also my GitHub handle uh, if you're into software. All right. Well, thank you for uh, joining me in this episode. Um, yeah, that was good. Thank you, Jimmy. This has been a blast. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Michael Flaxman can be found at mflaxman on Twitter. Until next time, fiat delenda est.